0: Thank you, Phil. That moment of service where you are enjoying the worship and realize you could get up and say some words. So uh, <clears throat> so here I am. Well, happy Easter Day, Spring. It's uh, an honor and a privilege to be here sharing with you. Uh, I was recalling this week a conversation that I had with a friend of mine some time ago, and uh, she came to the Lord uh, later in life. And uh, one of her friends was explaining to her the meaning of Christmas, and she understood some of that from her childhood. But I remember she said, uh, and then she was explaining me the meaning of Easter. Oh my gosh, that's like a really big deal. And I go, yeah, it's like the biggest deal. Um, Because Jesus is a big deal. Uh, And that's what we're here to talk about today. As I look at Jesus' life, I see that he made a lot of really radical statements. Um, but I would argue that, that none of them mean so much to us in our followership of him than when he literally said, follow me. And and those that accepted that invitation went with him on this journey. But it wasn't just a, an invitation to go places and do things. It was an invitation to a new lifestyle, yes. uh, a new way of living. Um, and it was almost against everything that they'd been taught. But it was a way that challenged them. Even as they grew in their faith and power, Jesus continued uh, to teach them and to refine them. So as I look at our Savior's final days on this earth, uh, I see such great intention in his teaching and in his actions to prepare his disciples and ultimately us to do at least three things. First, to surrender our lives to enter his kingdom. Second, to walk in humility and maintain focus on him. And thirdly, to conform to his image and his purpose and be empowered to establish the kingdom here on earth. So if you'll permit me this morning, I'm going to go a little out of chronological order, uh, but I want to start by looking at how Jesus demonstrates uh, entering the kingdom. So we're going to start in Luke 22, uh, verse 39. This is immediately following uh, what's known as the Last Supper, which we'll talk about later. This is Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. and This language indicates to us how Judas Iscariot knew uh, where to go to betray Jesus. It was a common place that he went with his followers, and his disciples followed him. Uh, we've got a slide uh, that depicts uh, Jerusalem at Jesus' time. The Mount of Olives is to the east of Jerusalem, east of the temple. Um, and it's, uh, the Mount of Olives is part of a mountain range on the eastern side that separates uh, Jerusalem from the Judean desert. The Garden of Gethsemane is a little uh, green block in the top right corner. Uh, and Gethsemane actually means oil press. Uh, and is located at the base of the Mount of Olives. But this hillside, scholars agree, would have been filled with campfires from all the pilgrims that had come uh, to visit Jerusalem for, for the Passover. Uh, So starting in verse 40, it says, On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you do not fall into temptation. I feel like it's easier to do if you're awake. No judgment. Of the disciples, we've never fallen asleep praying, any one of us. Verse 41 says, He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. We're going to read in a bit that the Father had put all things under Jesus' power, and yet... He chooses to surrender to the will of his Father. And so in my humble, unexpert opinion for each of us on our journey, as we contemplate followership, this is the most important moment in the history of the world. This is the, this is the moment our Savior chooses to surrender to the plan which will ultimately lead every one of us to salvation. Yeah. So I have a few questions for you. And the first one I have this morning is, have you been to the Garden of Surrender? This is the most important question that you and I will ever ask and answer in our lives. Have you surrendered your life to him? It is literally the requirement to receive the grace that Jesus paid for, thereby granting us entrance into his kingdom. One of the first things I tell people who are, are grappling with this idea of following Jesus is that surrender is the hardest place that you'll ever come to. Fact. It took me 35 years. <laughs> but what does it mean to surrender your life to Jesus? For me, The idea of surrender implies choice. And choice is the most powerful natural force on this earth. Because by the power of human choice, life is created and life is destroyed. Let me explain to you how Jason understands this process. I believe in the beginning God. God is a free will being. And he only creates other free will beings. He created his heavenly family. They have job titles like messenger or angel. right? He created them with free will. Some of them chose him and some of them did not. Then he created his earthly family, here, to represent him on this earth. In his image, he made us, male and female. And he gave us free will, the ability to choose him or to not choose him. But the path to that choice, to surrender, looks different for each and every one of us in this room. For a man named John Copenhaver, who's a former mixed martial arts fighter, also went by the name War Machine, it looked like a life sentence in prison. John Copenhaver was a a self proclaimed alpha male and uh, dated a a beautiful young woman who was an adult film actress named Christy Mack. They'd been broken up for several months when one evening he went over to her apartment late at night and found her in bed with her new boyfriend. He flew into a rage, beat the man terribly before sending him on his way and turning his sights on Christy Mack. All told, he broke 19 bones in her body, puncturing her liver before she finally managed to escape to safety. I followed this story from afar, um, and, I, and I prayed for him, and I prayed for his salvation, because when I read his story, I realized that it very well could have been my own story. In 2011, I was stationed in Monterey, California, working on my postgraduate education with the Navy when my wife moved out of the house. My verbal abuse and my rage had reached a, a level where it was not safe for her to live with me any longer. This from a preacher's kid who at uh, 35 years of age, had all the head knowledge necessary to surrender my life to him, but I could never bring myself to do it. I wanted to make my own choices. But on October 21st of 2012, something happened. I was at the penultimate moment of me. I'd been separated from my wife for 11 months, begun a new relationship, served her divorce papers, and I was on the way to freedom, or so I thought. But the unexplainable happened earlier that week. This unseen force, we now know as the Holy Spirit, or I now know as the Holy Spirit, had compelled me to go to my wife's apartment and confess to her about my 23 year addiction to pornography. And when that happened, something changed. And I believe what that thing was was that the mantle of shame that I lived under for 20 years shifted, it wasn't gone. But it shifted enough for me to come to a place that the Greeks refer to as metanoia, or a place where I was again thinking about my choices or thinking differently. And we know that is the first portion of repentance. And on October 21st, I did something that I'd never done before in my life. You see, I'd never ever given God anything. But in that moment, on that evening, I prayed into God's will for the first time, I gave him access. I told him that if he wanted me to learn to love my wife then he would have to show me how to do that. I offered him an opportunity with with barely a mustard seed of faith. And in that moment an exchange took place. I gave him sorry. I gave him the one thing that he'd always wanted. Access to my heart. And in return he took some things from me. He took my shame. He took my anger. He took my rage. He took away the lies that I believed in my heart about my wife and replaced them with truth and love. And at that moment, the entire room began to shake very violently like my entire house would break apart as we experienced a magnitude 5.2 earthquake in central California. I went to sleep shortly thereafter, and the next morning I woke to find that I had been born again. (laughs) You clap it up. You clap for that one. Dr. Doug O said that one of the most common the most common miracle that God regularly performs on this earth is that of a human being born again. The result of that seemingly simple moment of surrender was my mind being renewed, my life forever changed, and my marriage being restored. Back to John Copenhaver the UFC fighter, he was found guilty on 29 felony counts. And this was the response that he wrote. Well, that didn't go very well, and how did it? Would you believe me, though, if I said that I have nothing but joy inside, even now as I am sure to receive some type of life sentence? It's true. Oftentimes I've heard men in neighboring cells go to their cells and cry after receiving such news, but how can I? How can I cry tears of sorrow over the circumstances responsible for saving my soul? These circumstances are what has transformed me into a real man. How can I disrespect God by weeping over them? How much is a soul worth? Is a life sentence too high a price? Not at all. I gladly trade this false life in for the real one to come. I have been nothing but blessed by all of this. Now if only I could somehow receive Christy's forgiveness. And if only I could one day hear that she too had been saved. This would remove every last bit of tarnish from this tragedy. While John Copenhaver was in pre-trial confinement, a woman he had never met sent him two books, The Case for Christ and The Case for a Creator. He read both of those books cover to cover, and alone in his cell floor, gave his life to Jesus. The same change that took place in John Copenhaver is the same change that took place in myself. It is available to every single one of us today. So our surrender to his will enables transformation and grants us entrance to the kingdom. But once we enter that kingdom, Jesus wants to establish some safeguards for our heart. So let's go to John chapter 13, starting in verse 2, where Jesus is going to teach his disciples two crucial object lessons. It says, The evening meal was in progress. All right? so... Uh, the, the, the room, the upper room they would have been in would have had a, a large table, all right? The disciples would have been uh, gathered around, not like you see in the pictures, but they would have been laying most likely on mats, uh, probably on their sides, uh, and their right arm would have been free to, to reach for the food, to take it from the table, um, and they would have been in conversation with one another. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Uh, the scripture tells us that Jesus knew when he called his disciples who would eventually betray him. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. All things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, make sure we read this in context. Semicolon, so, right? Which means because of all this. So because he was returning to God, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Okay? So the meal's going on. There's food. There's conversation. All of a sudden, Jesus stands up and starts walking, right? So the disciples are thinking, the Christ, what is the Christ doing? The Christ is moving. Where is he going, right? Jesus goes over in verse 5. It says, after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him, right? So This is a very deliberate act. He's having to walk around the entire room. The disciples would have had to sit up on their mats, turn around, and put their feet in this basin, their dirty, disgusting feet, and the Savior of the world is washing them, right? So all things are under his power. Jesus knows this, and he is leaving, and he has to make sure, he has to make sure that his disciples are ready for ministry. This is his, ma- his last meal with them before he goes to the cross, right? More specifically, he has to make sure they see the Messiah, which means anointed one. He, they have to see his personal example, that the greatness in the kingdom looks like servanthood. Jesus always leads by example, and he always practices what he preaches, because he knows how dangerous his disciples' pride has become and how it would destroy their ministry if it's left, un- left unchecked. We're talking about, about fishermen, men of relatively low birth, tax collector, uh, religious zealots. They're walking around, and they're, they're speaking, and people are being healed. Spirits are being cast out by them, right? Their heads have swollen to like an unhealthy size. Right? But their identity wasn't in him yet. It wasn't really fully in the kingdom as much as it was in, in being and doing. This act of feet washing would have, would have blown their minds. Right? Jesus did a lot of mind-blowing things. I think we can all agree. But culturally, this was out of bounds for them. You see, when, when a disciple put themselves under a, a rabbi's teaching, it's because they revered that rabbi. Like, they put them on a pedestal. Like, he, was, he was larger than life for them, in addition that he was the Messiah, Right? So Jesus does something that is completely out of station for him. He's taking the station of a servant. This is literally what Jesus is doing, but, it, but he cares about them too much for them to fail, so he knows they have to see this from him. If, if you haven't seen um, Ray Vanderlyn's teaching on, on January 31st of this year, I encourage you to go back and watch it, because he does an incredible job of taking you through the arc of Jesus' ministry, and particularly the last few months, when Jesus is teaching the disciples very, very crucial and critical lessons. Uh, Luke 17 is a good example, but in Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, that's where the sons of Zebedee's mother comes to Jesus and says, can my son sit on your left and right side when you ascend into heaven? Right? And this is Jesus' response to, to, to his disciples to explain to them the danger of this. It says, but Jesus called them, to him to them and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Verse 26, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man, right, he's talking about himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what he is physically demonstrating in the upper room. But what about me? What about you? Have you chosen the path of a servant? Because when we get called into the kingdom, we're really getting called to serve. And servanthood isn't glamorous, is it? We don't want that. We just want accolades. There is such a danger in the American church today, in, the, in this culture where we just want to come to the house of the Lord and be served. Entertain me with worship. Don't ask too much for me. Don't ask me to tithe, right? Don't ask me to work kids' church. Uh, give me a good sermon, and I'll see you next week. But the problem is that that's unbiblical. That's unchristlike. That's not what jesus is explaining jesus says that the true path in the kingdom is the path of humility and this has to start with leadership it has to start with leadership right regardless of what you believe if you ask any one of us in the military who have served we will all be able to tell you a handful of, of leaders um, that we would go to war with in a heartbeat right that we would serve with in a second all of them lead by example all of them are men and women who 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 are servant leaders um let me give an example this is this is for you bob uh General Mattis, uh, some of you know him, the former general of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In 1998, uh, he was a, a lowly brigad, one-star brigadier general. Um, and the commandant of the Marine Corps, or the head of the Marine Corps at that time, was a guy named Charles Krulak, General Charles Krulak. And General Krulak on Christmas would go around and deliver cookies uh, to the, the Marines who were who were on duty. who had to stand watch that day. Uh, and he comes to the Marine Corps Combat Development Center. He talks to the young Marine who's on duty. He says, uh, uh, who's the duty officer today? And the Marine responds, sir, the the duty officer today is Brigadier General Mattis. That really didn't make sense to General Krulak, so he goes, no, the duty officer. Who is the duty officer today here? And he says, sir, the duty officer today is Brigadier General Mattis. Now, the duty officer is generally a a captain or a major, right? It's not a a one-star general. So General Krulak is a little frustrated, so he looks into the bunk room and he sees the cop. And he points it, and he said, no, Marine, that caught right there. Who slept there last night? And the Marine says, sir, Brigadier General Mattis slept in that cot last night. General Krulak is like, okay, this is ridiculous. A moment later, Jim Mattis walks around the corner, and the general is like, Jim, what are you doing here? So General Mattis goes on to explain that the night before, he was coming through making his rounds, checking in on the watch, And he talked to the young duty officer, a Marine major, and the major was explaining, you know, that he had a a wife and, and young kids. And General Mattis said, it didn't make any sense at all for him to miss Christmas with his family. He said, I'm a bachelor, so I just took the duty. That story is something of legend in the Marine Corps. And years later, they talked to General Krulak, who confirmed that every bit of it was true. But he also said this. He said he has never heard of before or since a general officer standing duty on Christmas Day, not once. Have you chosen the path that General Mattis chose, which is the path of a servant? And I'm really blessed to be here at Dayspring and have the type of of servant leadership that we have, right? Our leaders are on on the worship team. Our leaders uh, are greeters at the door. Um, I remember we went and helped, a few of us went and helped a friend move a couple months ago. And I pulled, up to, I pulled up and parked, and the door opened, and the guy got out of the car next to me, uh, and it was a guy named Phil Wilson, right? Um, I just have to brag on our leadership, because that's the kind of servant leadership that the kingdom requires. Last but not least, this absolutely applies to leadership of our homes. Men, if you want to lead your family, start by serving them. If you have children, show them what it looks like to serve your wife. But Jesus has another object lesson to teach his disciples. We're going to enter our time of communion If you do not have the elements, um, the bread and the the, the wine, would you raise your hand? I think we have some ushers that can come by and and, uh, hook you up. Hands back up, put them down. Got some here. Mine's child-proof, so I'll just move on. Wife <laughs> reminds me this is why I shouldn't bite my fingernails. Don't judge me. Don't judge me. Alright. Alright, so the last supper, oh thank you, Natasha. You are you're the best ever. Someone was paying attention to my comments about being a servant. All right, so the Last Supper was a meal, all right? Uh, they weren't just crushing unleavened bread and pounding wine. There's, that's a recipe for a tummy ache. Um, the Lord's Supper was a communal meal, and that's really where we get the word communion from. Uh, the word Paul uses to refer to our participation in this event is the Greek word koinonia, uh, which means fellowship or participation. It's the same thing that Jesus and his disciples were doing there. Uh, they were celebrating Passover, Right? They were remembering what Yahweh had done to save his people when he led Him out of, him out of Egypt. Uh, but they only do that once a year, much like Easter. And as much as I love this holiday and what it stands for, it's not a command in the Bible. But remembering him when we break bread in fellowship absolutely is. That's why we pray before our meal. We thank him not just for our food, but for what he did for us on the cross. Because Jesus isn't just a twice-a-year savior. He's an everyday savior. Right? So when we gather as a body... As a community of believers, we intentionally, frequently participate in communion so that we never lose sight of what our Savior did for us. What we do today is not for an atonement. This is not for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus already accomplished that, right? But we are doing what expressly it says in the Word of God to remember our Savior's death until he returns. And he's going to return. So we rejoice as we remember his sacrifice that rescues us and restores us to right standing with the Father In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled or satisfied. Jesus alone is the bread of life who fills the emptiness within each of us. Let's take the bread together. And it is his blood that cleanses us of all unrighteousness when we give our lives to him. Let's take the one together. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you today to offer nothing but our heartfelt thanks in our lives. Father, as a living sacrifice on the altar, as a reminder. And as reciprocity for really what your son did for us some 2,000 years ago. Father, we are beyond grateful. Father, for the opportunity that we have to serve in your kingdom. And Father, we never want to take this moment for granted or take it lightly. Jesus, we love you. We give our lives to you. We're here for you. Amen. So I'm going to do something a little bit different for this next part. Um, <laughs> I've shared this with some people. When my, when my oldest daughter was born, um, we had some friends that gave us a book called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, because I'm a, a glutton for punishment, I'm going to read from that to you now. Um, the author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, has just this beautiful way of, uh, of simplifying and, uh, and personalizing um, the the stories uh, that we read in the Bible that are really history, um, but if you would do do this for me, as I read through the the crucifixion narrative, uh, if you just close your eyes, um, and just um, just meditate, just think on on this moment, on what our Savior was going through, um, and ultimately that He did it uh, with us in mind. I'll try and make it through this. This is called The Sun Stopped Shining. So you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. Then you'll need a crown and a robe. They gave Jesus a crown made out of thorns and put a purple robe on him and pretended to bow down to him. Your majesty, they said. Then they whipped him and spat on him. They didn't understand that this was the prince of life. The king of heaven and earth. Would come to rescue them the soldiers made a sign our king and nailed it to a wooden cross they walked up a hill outside the city jesus carried the cross on his back jesus had never done anything wrong but they were going to kill him the way criminals were killed they nailed him to the cross father forgive them jesus gasped they don't understand what they're doing You say you've come to rescue us, people shouted, but you can't even rescue yourself. But they were wrong. Jesus could have rescued them, himself. A legion of angels would have flown to his side if he'd called. If you were really the son of God, you could just come down off that cross, they said. And of course, they were right. Jesus could have climbed down. Actually, he could have just said a word and made it all stop. Like when he healed that little girl. And stilled the storm. And fed 5,000 people. But Jesus stayed. You see, they didn't understand. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. Papa, Jesus cried out, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And for the first time, and the last... When he spoke, nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. Tears rolled down Jesus' face. The face of the one who would wipe away every tear from every eye. Even though it was midday, a dreadful darkness covered the face of the world. The sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. The great mountains shook. Rocks split in two until it seemed that the whole world would break, that creation itself would tear apart. The full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down on his own son, instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. Then Jesus cried out in a loud voice: It is finished. And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. Father, Jesus cried, I give you my life. And with a great sigh, he let himself die. Strange clouds and shadows filled the sky. Purple, orange, black, like a bruise. You know, as a kid, I used to think, Why did the devil kill Jesus? That was a real dumb idea, but that's because I didn't fully understand what what Sally Lloyd-Jones, the author of The Storybook Bible refers to as God's secret rescue plan. It was a plan that was devised before the foundations of this earth were even laid. A plan known only to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. And God inspired it to be written into the pages of the books of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, but never in any one place altogether. A beautiful puzzle to be searched for and put together only once the plan had been completed. You know, there's countless religions in this world, but the sacrifice of the one and only Son of God is unique to Christianity. To be sure, there are similarities between stories in the Bible and stories from other Middle Eastern cultures, but there is no one like Jesus that has ever walked this earth. The world in Jesus' day valued power above all other things. Power was derived from strength, wealth, and religious control. Gods were supposed to be strong and self-serving. Servants were considered weak and powerless. But Jesus brought to the world an opportunity to enter what some call the upside-down kingdom. Where the last are first, the first are last. Where the proud are laid low, and the weak are made powerful in him. Today we've been talking about a kingdom and a king, but at its deepest level, The Bible is about a father and a family. God is a father, and his children were lost like sheep, so he sent a good shepherd. We were living a lie, so he sent the truth. We were empty and unfulfilled, so he sent the bread of life. We were without direction, and so he sent the way. The passion of the Christ is derived from the father's zealous love for his children 1 John 3, verse 1 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are, because of Him, because of love. But that love did not stay in the grave. Matthew 28, verse 1 through 9, After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look in the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran into his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said, and they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. They worshiped him because he is worthy. Amen. Hallelujah! Jesus is risen. Jesus, the hope of glory, our hope, is risen. After this, Jesus spent a few days on the earth where he fellowshiped with his friends and showed himself to many before ascending to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. But why did he go so soon? I think it's because he had taught his disciples everything he had to teach them. What Jesus did on this earth, every parable he taught, every object lesson he demonstrated, everything was done with the explicit purpose of teaching his disciples to look like him. To surrender completely to the Father's love to get rid of the pride, to abide in him, stripping away all the fleshly, sinful nature and conforming them to the image of Christ. The last question I have for you today, Spring, is do you look more like him today than you did at the beginning of 2020? Do you look the same? Do you look less like him? You know, personally, and I've shared this with several, 2020 was a crazy year, but it was probably the second best year of my life. My wife will tell you that since the beginning of 2020, I've I've changed dramatically. As a husband, a father, and a friend, this change has come through people in my core family group pouring into me, through the men in my DNA group. Sorry. Sharpening and challenging me. Thank you, Kevin. Right. They're spending time with our leadership through serving at our, our food pantry. Among other things, <laughs> when I was writing this, I was, I was reflecting on when I started serving at, at the food pantry. It was it was like a job for me, right? Something to be done well, like the military service was for me. Um, and, and and initially, uh, I would I remember I would just get really irritated or, or frustrated with people who, who came to the food pantry and they seemed, you know, somehow entitled um, or, or like they were milking the system. But over this last year, Right, as I've really begun to focus on, on putting on the character of Christ, I find I don't get offended by people as much. I really just want them to want Jesus. But if I don't look like Jesus, and I tell them that I represent him, then why would they want any part of Jesus? Admittedly, i, I got a long way to go, uh, but I'm resolved to look a little more like him every day of my life. You see, ultimately the son knew what the father knew, and that is unless we look like him, unless we will look like the world. Unless we pursue holiness, no one will want what we have, right? Uh, Because ultimately, we just look like them. The word holy in Greek means physically pure and morally blameless. But even on our best day, we couldn't meet that standard. Even on our best day. And so the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh at Pentecost. I know this is an Easter message. I know it. I wrote it. Trust me. I know that the best news is that Jesus saves. But for me, the second best news is that he did not leave us alone. And he didn't leave us without power and without a purpose. And now we, as his sons and daughters, can walk in authority and power with access to his Holy Spirit. To be Jesus to a lost and dying world. You know, Jesus during his time on earth did everything with a singular focus. Everything in accordance with his father's will. He was never deterred from this. Not even once. But before he left, he handed off that mission to those he trusted and prepared ahead of time. We call that handoff, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verse 18, you've you've heard it before, but I'm going to expound on it a little bit this morning. That Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. When Jesus spoke to those gathered on that hilltop and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, what did they understand that to mean? I listened to a teaching by Bill Schofield recently where he reminded me that Peter explains it in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, where he says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living And the dead. So when Jesus says what he says in Matthew 28, what he's literally saying is, I'm going to judge the living and the dead. So teach everyone the things that I taught you save them, set them free, baptize them for the forgiveness of their sins. I'm coming to judge the nations. So you go and make sure that they are ready for that moment. Are you ready, Day Spring? Are you ready for the harvest? It's coming. Look around you. Seriously, look around you. These are your fellow workers. Each of us brings a unique gifting to the body, but we can all look a little more like Jesus. I'm excited. I want to pursue the kingdom together. Let's press this kingdom forward. Let's stand to our feet. If I get the ministry team to come forward, Please. I started off by reminding us that today is a big deal. And among all the things that today is, I believe it's a day of grace. Grace can be defined as unmerited favor, but it's also divine empowerment. If you're here today and you need that unmerited favor, that free gift that comes with surrendering your life, only to find it for the first time, there is grace at the altar for you. If you're struggling with pride in any area of your life, if serving is a struggle for you, in ministry, leadership, and relationships, there is divine empowerment to enable you to do that here at the altar. And finally, if you need to look more like Jesus in a particular area of your life, specifically when it comes to ministry and your calling, there is grace here for you as well. Don't wait. Don't wait another moment. Come forward. Happy Easter Day, Spring. He is risen.